We're so glad to have this place to meet together however long the Lord allows us to meet here. And we don't know how long that is because there is an end of all things. You know that, right? There is an end of all things. There is an end of the world. Usually, the end of the world is either a subject of mockery or it's the subject of fear. But seldom is it the subject of comfort and joy. But it is for Christians. And that's the theme of the passage that we're looking at today. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. The goal of this text is mentioned at the very end. Verse 11, therefore, in view of everything I've said, therefore, encourage, or the same word, comfort one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So I'd like to look at this passage. There is an end. That's the first thing I'd like to point out. Secondly, will it be a good end or a bad end? And thirdly, how do we wait for the end? There is an end. Let me begin with that. Passage begins, verse 1. Now as to the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Unexpectedly. You can't predict it. The bottom line about the question when, which is what we always ask, right? Hundreds of books are written describing when the Lord will come, whether it's close, what signs point to it. The bottom line to the answer when is given by Jesus. No one knows, he says. Several passages in the gospel. No one knows. No one knows the date and the hour. Paul's goal here is not to give us a chart of the timeline. He's not giving us a lecture on the details of when this event will come. But his goal, verse 11, is to comfort and encourage God's people. So you have to think about that. When you think about the second coming, how is it a comfort or encouragement? By second coming, I mean the time when the Lord Jesus will return again and it will be the end of history. And that's what this is talking about. You have no need for anybody to write to you about the times and epochs of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the end of this age when The true king, Jesus, comes in glory. The judge of all the earth appears. And his purpose is comfort and encouragement. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That passage, which we looked at a few weeks ago, is the comfort given to us that this life is not it. That if we've lost loved ones, loved ones, we have not lost all hope because the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that death itself has been conquered. Therefore, comfort one another. And now the comfort is about a final end. It's the end of all sorrows, of all injustice, of all ruin. All those dark shadows that fall and infect even the best beauties that God has given us on this world. And it ends with the same thing. There's a new world coming and therefore, verse 11, therefore comfort one another and build up one another. So there is an end. Is it a comfort though? Do you think of it as a comfort? Do you think of it as a joy? I remember talking to a young Christian woman a short while ago. and She says, yeah, yeah, I I want the Lord Jesus to come, but oh, please, can't he just wait till after I get married at least? There's some joys and pleasures in this world. And you say, I don't want to miss out on that. Others are filled with fear and dread about what might happen. Beginning uh, in the 18th century, you know, Malthus predicted famine. And starvation would be the inevitable result of the growth of population. 
1968, there was a bestseller, New York Times bestseller book called The Population Bomb. And here's the opening words of the first editions. It said, the battle to feed all humanity is over. In the 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. Interestingly, in the later editions published in the 1970s, that paragraph was taken out. <laughs> of course, there's been the fear of nuclear apocalypse hanging over us since the A-bomb was first invented, World War II. Will that be the end of the age? Not so long ago, a little humorous, but about a decade ago, there was a, when the lab was being built in Switzerland, or was about to come online in Switzerland called CERN, many nations came together to build this huge lab. It's a 17-mile-long tunnel through which protons are accelerated at enormous speeds. They, they go at, at speeds so that through this 17-mile circumference, they transverse it about 11,000 times in one second. And they go in opposite directions, and then finally they're caused to smash into each other. And as they obliterate, break apart, you find all kinds of wonderful secrets about what matter is really made of. But the energy is enormous. And some people said, it's so big that a black hole will form. You know what black holes do, right? They just gobble up everything. They just suck in matter like an like a infinite well into which matter falls and never comes out. So they're going to suck in the rest of the lab. They're going to suck in the physicists that are working on it. They're going to suck in Switzerland, where this lab is located. They're going to suck in the whole world. There was protest. There was lawsuits filed to stop this. Fear. It's the end of the world. You push that button that says start, and the world will end. Apocalypse. We talk about it in many ways. In fact, the word apocalypse, when it's used in movies and books, is usually a very negative term, isn't it? A fearful term. It means a terrible end which is about to come. Negative word in our culture. But interestingly, in the Bible, it's a positive word. You know, the Greek word just means unveiling. It means revelation. As, as the last book of the Bible, the apocalypse of John. It's the revelation given to the apostle John. Here in the Bible, it's a comfort as in chapter 4, look at what verse 16 says. This is the apocalypse, the revelation of Jesus. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's, a, it's the end. When Jesus appears in his full glory, the king comes. The one we've been waiting for and hoping for finally appears. And it's a wonderful establishment of the righteous kingdom of the King of Kings. That's what apocalypse means to Christians. So, does the end bring you fear or comfort? Let's go to the second point. Is it a good end or is it a bad end? Does it bring you fear or does it bring you comfort? Well, it depends on who you are. That's what our text says. There's this great division described here, two distinct groups of people. So, so the first group mocks the very idea of an end. Let me just uh, point out a few phrases that are used here. If you have your Bibles, verse 3, while they, notice the they, while they are saying peace and safety, destruction comes upon them. They're sure everything is okay. Like the Thessalonians, by the way, were enjoying the Pax Romana. You know, the Roman armies, wherever they patrolled, they built 
bridges and aqueducts and roads and everything was working well. They kept all the enemies at bay so that people could function. They could prosper. Businesses could work. Everything was going wonderfully. Just like us, right? We have armies. We have FBI, CIA, TSA. Who knows what else we have just to keep us safe so that businesses can prosper, our economy isn't hurt, and we're happy. Peace and safety, that's all we want. So there's those who think everything is okay. They also, remember, notice the word they, is talking about another group. They also are of the darkness and of the night, verses 4 and 5. Now, darkness is when we do things that we want to keep hidden. That's what the symbolism is, right? remember watching this trial, which was of national importance many years ago, and the prosecutor said about the defendant, he was calling somebody at 3 o'clock in the morning. And the defense attorney said, yeah, so what? What's wrong with calling somebody at 3 o'clock? And the response of the prosecutor always makes me smile. He says, when somebody calls somebody else at 3 in the morning, they're up to no good. Darkness, you see, darkness. It's that symbol, and that's what's used here. They're children of darkness or not of the light. They're up to no good. They're up to what needs to be hidden. And then verse 7 says they're sleeping. In chapter 4, remember, sleeping meant was a metaphor for death. But here, it's spiritual slumber. And so they're also described as drunk. You know, they're just not aware of what's happening around them. Everything is clear to those who are not drunk, but they can't perceive what is obvious to others. Jesus described this group of people, by the way, in many other ways also. It's very interesting because he talks about in many parables of a master or a landlord who leaves and then he's going to come back and he describes the attitudes of those who are left behind. You've probably read many of these. For example, there's one in Luke chapter 12, beginning at, well, the whole chapter really beginning at 35, but beginning at 42 and on, it talks about a servant who's put in charge, he has work to do, but the master delays in coming. And what does the servant begin to do? It says he begins to drink. He gets drunk. Then he starts to abuse and beat the other servants. And then the master comes. Because the servant is saying, "Ah, he's not coming back. i got lots of time. He may never come back. But then the master comes unexpectedly. And it's a day of judgment. Similarly, in Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 1, there's that parable that you've heard about, about the women and the oil lamps, remember that one? They're waiting for the bridal party to come, but they're unprepared. They're unprepared. Oh, we got lots of time. I'm just going to rest for a while. I'll get to that later. But then the groom comes, and then they rush to prepare, but it's too late. And when they come to the wedding banquet, the door is shut, and they're not allowed to go in. And then in Matthew chapter 22, beginning again at verse 1, Jesus describes these people in yet another way. They're busy with good things. They're busy getting married. They're busy with their businesses, with buying and selling, all the things that we have to do. But the busyness keeps them from responding to the invitation of the king. And so they're left out. That's what the they here is referring to. There's two distinct groups of people. So note that contrast. Verse 3 is while they are saying, but then notice what happens In verse 4, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. There's a contrast. You are the sons of light, it says. And then actually by verse 5, the you becomes we and us. Because he's talking about all Christians. There's a contrast between they and then those who are in Christ. We're children of the light or the day. We're sober. 
We're alert, verse 6. And then, most wonderfully, our destiny is fixed. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us, notice again the contrast, they and us, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. He's already chosen us. He's bought us by His blood. We belong to Him. He's put His love on us. So our destiny is fixed. It's to be with the Lord forever. So there's two groups of people. In some ways, the end is a surprise to both of them, but it's a different kind of surprise to both of them. For the first, it says, well, verse 2, the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And then verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But notice the contrast. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. So it's not like a thief for us, but it is like a thief for the they, for the them, those who are outside of Christ. Like a thief. They're spiritually asleep already, you see. They're they're slumbering. Imagine you're slumbering and sleeping and a thief breaks into your house and the first thing you hear is the voice of the thief telling you to get up, and there's a weapon pointed right at your head. Terror, fear, you scream. That's what it's conveying here. Or like a woman in labor. Uh, Jesus used the same image, by the way, describing the end times. And Paul, in many ways, is quoting and using the same imagery as Jesus does elsewhere. But why is there a surprise? I mean, a woman who's having labor pangs knows very well what's coming, right? There's a birth coming. Why is there a surprise? Well, it's because the labor pangs ought to be a warning. It's a clear warning. Anybody who's aware ought to know and recognize the signs, but they did not. They ignored all the signs. I know it seems weird, but Jill used to work in labor and delivery. And she told me that once a woman came to the ER with stomach pains, They didn't know what to do. They examined her. And as they examined her, they found not only that she was pregnant, but that she was at the point of giving birth. So they rushed her over to the labor and delivery department, and the baby was born. So this woman didn't know she was pregnant and didn't even know that the birth was imminent. I know you're going to turn over in your head. How could that be? Come on. There's a hundred reasons why that wouldn't be. I'm not going to prove it now. It just happened. Believe me, it actually happened like that. And the truth is, and this is the terrible truth, that spiritually it can also happen. We can be absolutely unaware of the events unfolding around us which point to the end of the age. And all of a sudden we awaken. What? Me? Standing before the judge? The end of the age? Now? Are you kidding me? I had no idea. For some, it's like a thief. It's like a woman in labor who's unaware of what things are happening. But then there's a second group, right? That's you. That's me. And they're described as alert, sober. And for them, it's a day of great rejoicing because it's the day when everything is going to be put right. It's a new world. It's the answer to all our prayers ultimately. I don't know if you've noticed this, but often when you read the Psalms, 
you see the psalmist saying things that eh, might make you cringe a bit. Oh God, destroy the wicked. Remove those who are a hindrance to me, who make my life difficult. Ah, Lord, bless the righteous. And you think, oh, we shouldn't talk that way. And yet, deep in our hearts, we do feel that way, don't you? Don't you want the Lord to remove those who are unjust and evil and wicked, who oppress other people and make use of those? They're cruel to those who they're supposed to care for. They abuse the most innocent and vulnerable parts of our society. They're filled with pride. In fact, they act like gods. What God? I'm God. They're filled with a sense of moral purity. I don't need grace. I don't need mercy. I don't need forgiveness. Isn't there a time when they should stand before God? Many of the Psalms and really many of our prayers are for those things to be set right. For example, here's one. I'm just going to read parts of Psalm 35 just to give you a sense and you can read the whole Psalm later. Psalm 35 says, All my bones shall say, O Lord who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and the needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up, they repay me evil for good. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth, I afflicted myself with fasting, I prayed for them with head bowed on my chest, and went about as though I grieved for my own friend, my own brother. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me. Rescue me from their destruction. My precious life from the lions. We pray that. We want justice. We want righteousness. We want things to be set right. And there's a day coming when all those prayers will be answered by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So there's two groups of people. Both are surprised in a way. Jesus said that and Paul says that it's unexpected, this coming of the Lord. But the surprises are different. The responses are different. One is like one of our children. There was a chocolate cake on the kitchen counter. And she pulled up a stool, got up to the chocolate cake and was just digging in. Eating all she could. Didn't hear us coming in behind her. And when we called her name, she turned around with this look of terror in her face chocolate in her hands and all over her face. There's that kind of a surprise. It's unexpected, yes. But there's another kind of a surprise. Many times it's happened, I'd come home and Jill was maybe pulling a cake out of the oven and she looks up over the kitchen counter, oh, you're home. I didn't expect you right now. It's good to see you. That's a different kind of a surprise, isn't it? It's two groups of people that are described in our text with two different responses to the unexpected return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for us, it's a welcome surprise. It depends on our relationship to the King of Kings. We love Him and we live out our relationship to Him day by day. We both wait. Everybody waits. Nobody knows when it's going to come. It's unexpected. But how do we wait? So this is the third point. How do we wait during this time? Waiting is hard, isn't it? I don't know how you feel about this, but I'd much rather drive myself than have somebody pick me up. Do you feel that way? Because ah, you're dependent on them. I'll pick you up at five. So at, you know, ten of, five of, I'm ready to go. I've got all, whatever, five to take something, it's by the door. I'm sitting on the sofa watching, watching out the window. Five o'clock, nobody. Five o'five, nobody. Five ten, where are they? 
you can't do anything. I can't start another project because it'll be interrupted. I can't even read a book because I'll be looking out the window constantly. I can't focus on anything. There's that kind of waiting, which is idle. You're not really doing anything. You're just waiting, 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 and doing nothing. But there's another kind of waiting. One of my first jobs was at a department store, and the, the manager had this pallet of stuff, and he led me to it. He says, put this on the shelves. All right. And he says, I'll be right back. It's a big pallet. I didn't know how long it would take me to load it, but of course I got busy. What's he going to say if I come back and it's not done? Does he expect me to be done before he comes back? I don't know. There's lots of questions. All I know is I better get busy and put those boxes on the shelves. So he came back and I was curious. What's he going to say? Was I too slow? Did I do it right? There's a different kind of waiting there, isn't it? Busy. Doing what you're supposed to do. Doing the best you can at what you're called to do. But we know what Jesus will say. When he comes and he finds us busy with the work he's given us to do, we know exactly what he will say. He will not say what that wicked servant expected him to say in Matthew chapter 25. He won't say, ha, you didn't do any good. You kept my money safe, but I expected far more from you. He won't be like the servant expected, cruel and hard. He won't be one who reaps where he did not sow. Instead, he's kind and merciful and gracious. That's what verses 9 and 10 says. God has destined us. I might say God has already destined us, not for wrath, but for salvation. Already he's died for us. So whether we are awake or die, asleep, we will live together with him. Already he's pledged his love for us. Already he said that our destiny is to be with him forever. That's never in question. We know that when we see him, we'll see one that's on our side. So we wait expectantly, not with dread. And we wait busily. We're doing what he calls us to do. That's what we want to do. When he comes, may he find us occupied. And what should we be occupied with? Well, here we come back to the theme that we've been pursuing in the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's in verse 8. Notice this trio. But since we are of the day, here's how you prove you're of the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's those three questions every human being has to ask himself or herself. It defines us spiritually, whether we're Christians or not. But for Christians, we have unique, special, Christ-centered answers. The first question is, who or what do I trust? Whom or what do I trust? That's the faith question. The second question is, how do I love? Everybody talks about love. Everybody believes in love. But what is love and how do I actually love? And the third question is, in what do I hope? And these three guide our lives as we wait for the Lord. Faith, we've been talking about that as it comes up in this text repeatedly. Faith means trusting in the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like the promise that he will come and put an end to all things and bring things to a glorious conclusion. It means trusting in his promises day by day for our lives. Living by that. It also means obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Not out of fear and dread but because we trust him. He's wise and he's good and he loves us. What better thing could we do for ourselves than to just obey him? Do what he asks us to do. How can you show that you trust the Lord? Especially in light of his second coming, in light of this end that we've been talking about. How can you show that you trust the Lord? I'll tell you what Jesus said. 
Jesus gave a very specific instruction in Luke chapter 18. It's a parable, another story he told. It begins in 1, verse 1 of Luke 18. You can read it. You've heard it, I'm sure, many times. It's about the, the widow who was persistent. Remember that? She had a cause that she wanted to bring up to the judge. The judge kept putting her off, putting her off. But she never relented. She kept bothering him, hitting him with her purse, you know, saying, no, I won't let you go. Kept pleading, that is, kept praying, asking. And finally the judge gave in and gave her what he wanted. Now, here's the interesting thing about this parable. First of all, the context is the second coming of Jesus because the previous chapter, Luke 17, is Jesus' teaching about his second coming. And then, secondly, is Jesus' conclusion. He says, okay, this woman kept pleading or praying and finally got what she wants. How much more, Jesus says, will God give justice to his elect? But then he ends with a dramatic question. And this is the one that we have to be thinking about. He says, when the Son of Man returns, will he still find faith? Will he still find his people crying to him? Will he still find people depending on him and his salvation for their lives, for their friends, and for the world? Will he find them taking matters into their own hands? Will he find them... Well, saying, I've waited so long, I can't wait anymore. I'm going to quit praying. Praying does no good. Will he still find faith on the earth? So that's the first thing. You know, All of us as Christians have to ask ourselves is, who do I trust? And is my trust, as I view the coming of the Lord, is my trust exhibited in a life of prayer? Uh, second thing is love. What would the Lord find in my heart, in your heart, in our relationships, if he came tonight? What would he find? I quoted from Luke chapter 12 earlier. And if you read those verses, you find that one of those servants, remember I said, couldn't wait anymore. And he he got sick and tired of waiting. And he said, ah, master's probably never going to come. And he began to beat and abuse the other servants. And Jesus said, concluding in Luke chapter 12, verse 40, you must be ready For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, I don't think any of us would literally beat our fellow Christians, I hope. But you know how Christians do it. We don't use whips, we use our tongues. We lash out at people with gossip and slander. We we hurl withering criticism at people so that those who are employed serving the Lord find their joy vanishing, their energy gone. They don't want to do what God has called them to do anymore. What will God find? What will Christ find if he comes? Keep accounts short. That's what this is saying. Ephesians 4 verse 26 says, Settle matters before you go to bed. As much as possible. Don't let anger fester. Because Jesus may come tonight. What will he find in our relationships? There's faith, there's love, and then there's hope. God has destined us. Isn't that wonderful? It says in verse 9, God has destined us for salvation. God has a destiny for you and me and for this whole world and for this whole creation. It's a new world that's coming. And Titus describes it as the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And friends, that's where everything is headed. It's like a torrent. It's like a river flowing to that end. All of history is flowing that way. 
Your life is flowing that way. My life is flowing that way. The church is flowing that way. And nothing can stop it. It's all headed for that glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When everything will be set right. And that end is in the hands of our good and gracious and sovereign God. May God comfort your hearts with this truth. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for this promise that you have not forgotten us, that you know what's happening in our lives, the pains and the sorrows and the confusions. You know what's happening in this world, the cracks and fissures everywhere. The wicked seem to triumph so often. The righteous seem to be defeated. But we know that's not the end. Thank you for this promise, Lord, that you're still King and Lord. And that there is a day when your patience will come to an end. And you will set things right. Oh Lord, comfort our hearts with that promise. In your holy name we pray it. Amen. What our text says is echoed many places in Hebrews 10. It gives this instruction as we see the Lord's appearing, coming close. He says, hold fast to your faith. Don't forsake assembling together and encourage one another. And then it says, all the more as you see that day drawing near. People are discouraged, I'll tell you. People are confused. This world is, is full of strife, partisanship, ugliness. They need encouragement. We have a job to do. It says in verse 11 of our text, encourage one another. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. That's my benediction. May you be encouraged and built up as you think that our sovereign God is on the throne and history is, is in His hands. And may you be filled with love and wisdom so that you can encourage one another also. Amen.